0: bretto after an extremely tough 2020 for many it is so exciting to announce our first in real life event for 2021
1: oh mp it's an understatement to say we miss connecting with our tribe but it makes the 2021 wellness breakthrough all the more exciting
0: if you're ready to rebound or to make a comeback and even make 2021 your best year yet you are warmly invited to join Brett, myself and an intimate group of like-minded souls at the wellness breakthrough from february 5 to 7
1: Imagine yourself tucked away in the serene Strezlecki Ranges of Gippsland, Victoria. You don't have to cook, you don't have to clean or do anything domestic. We feed you, we accommodate you, we hold the space for you to create your
0: own wellness breakthrough. Whether it's in your health, your relationships, work, life, wealth, spirit, any part of your life, you can expect major transformation at our most intimate event.
1: We'd love for you to join us, but spaces are strictly limited to 20 attendees. And as we record this, we have less than 10 spaces left.
0: For more info, to watch the highlights of previous years, and to join us from February 5 to 7 in 2021, go to thewellnessbreakthrough.com.
2: Now, however that looks for you, whoever that is, male or female, whatever, but someone that you can listen to that's been in that pathway of discovery and also, I think, for yourself, of finding some self-awareness and working on oneself to realise that, hey, man, we're fallible. You know, we're humans. And excuse my French, we fuck up and make mistakes. But as long as you can learn from those um, and and accept, you know, accept that we aren't and accept that you make mistakes and that you have been wrong or you've been stupid and silly and you've just got to somehow find a way Um, that you feel good about yourself again and love yourself.
3: Welcome to the Self-Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well-being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials. Here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison. Hey there, welcome to this week's Self-Love Podcast. Really excited because this week... I am interviewing a very special soul, someone very close to my heart and someone who I know incredibly well. I know you're going to love his story. I know you're going to be as inspired as I am. And I certainly know that you're going to feel the same pride about someone reaching for and achieve, achieving their dreams and going for it regardless of what the naysayers or other people say, do or feel. My beautiful husband, Danny Morrison, is this week's guest. and I think you're going to feel the same that I did, regardless of the fact that I'm his wife. But, you know, to hear his story, to hear his ambition, his drive, and the reason why he wanted to become a New Zealand cricketer and take over the amazing role that Sir Richard Hadley played in opening the bowling for New Zealand, and how he forged a career for 10 years at the top of his game, only to find himself thrown onto the junk heap of life, then wondering, who the hell am I? What am I going to do? Where to from here? And I'm really proud of the fact that he forged a career in the media world where he now is a well-renowned, well-regarded commentator, particularly in the 2020 and T10 game. So I think you're going to really enjoy this week's podcast. It was an honor for me to interview him, to share Danny with you. And I sincerely hope you get to give him the love and the praise that he deserves. At the end of it, don't forget to go to all my social media platforms, particularly Instagram, Kim Morrison 28, and also Facebook, Kim Morrison Training is my uh, business page. I cannot wait to hear what you think of this podcast. As I said, it's a real honor to interview someone you know so well, and I look forward to sharing with you my beautiful husband, Danny Morrison. Welcome to this week's self-love podcast. I have an incredibly special guest. I may be a tad biased, but he's one of the most extraordinary humans I've had the pleasure to not only know and get to know well and very, very well, um, but I have a, I am privileged to be married to this special man. Welcome to the Self-Love Podcast, Danny Morrison.
2: Thank you, Kim Morrison. <laughs> Hashtag ditto, the way I feel about you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's such a treat to not only have my own show after seven years of doing a podcast with Cindy and Karen, um, but then to start the Self-Love Podcast, something that you and I, have talked a lot about over years, particularly yourself with your history, and we'll get into that a little bit more around being a professional athlete, but also, you know, what it really means to love yourself through the good and not so good, Hmm. and maybe also from a man's perspective. But, you know, to get the show started, what would you say your definition of self-love is?
2: I I suppose the ultimate is that you have enough self-respect and that, I suppose, means lots of things on lots of levels. And that's regardless of being, um, for me, a previous professional athlete, playing cricket, living your dream, uh, tearing around the globe, um, being extremely blessed and grateful that, you know, you could realise a dream. Um, And, then yeah, self-love of – also, I think, over history and time and gaining experience that you – Talk to older people when you were younger and now me in your mid-50s to look back on that, to what they were saying about advice or just how they saw things and perhaps how they matured over time because we all change. There's no doubt about it through your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, 50s, whatever, and through and through. And so it's interesting and fascinating to look back on um, how you would have approached things back then, how you do things differently. I know that's clichéd. Anyone does. (laughs) They say, I wish we had all the knowledge And the hindsight, of course, um, to have done things perhaps a bit differently um, and approach things differently. And so for me of self-love is is, is certainly, I think, just having an appreciation of where it's at. And I think having listened to um, you individually and then when you're with Karen and Cindy um, and just having an appreciation that you are in the now, you're in the present. And you've got to enjoy yourself or love yourself, however that looks, um, at any given stage of where you're at in your life. And that may be different things about how we then will get into probably, as you say, self-sabotage or or not liking yourself and self-loathing because of various choices and where you've been and what perhaps influenced those decisions. Um, But, yeah, I just think you've got to be content. And I think self-love, you know, dash, contentment of where you're at with yourself and learning to live in the skin that you've got in it.
3: Yeah, pretty spe- it's pretty special, isn't it? Well, before we get into your life as a sportsman, talk to us a little bit about your special upbringing with the amazing Sandy Morrison. Hmm. Um, talk to us a little bit about what that was like growing up in New Zealand for you and being on the North Shore in Auckland. Um, explain to us a little bit how you got to live your dream as a professional athlete.
2: Well, I are more out west, you know, and my father was a lot more out of, of a West Auckland guy, just the geography and then um I suppose my parents split back in early seventy three mum went and followed her younger brother who was you know working for Air New Zealand cabin crew and said Look, bring that bring you know bring Daniel and Zara over to the north shore. there's just you know just more options you know you're on more on the coast." Um, you know, people do different things um, because you've got water there and access, and it's just it was a lot more. You know, being blessed to grow up in that marine suburb of Devonport, around Belmont, Devonport, Stanley Bay, um, and going to Takapuna Grammar uh, in that region. Um, yeah, very unique and special. And you know, renting a, uh, renting with my uncle and um, a large household, um, and say uh, mum with her boyfriend at the time. Um, yeah, it was it was. Such a big transition. I think you know you, you're going about children needing stability and security, and then by that big shift of moving from you know the West Auckland area over the Harbour Bridge to you know Auckland's North Shore, so very different. But again, when I look at it, very idyllic, and and so grateful that um, Mum followed and said yeah to her brother, her younger brother, and said yeah let's let's you know set down some building blocks here. And um, moved to Auckland's North Shore, in then so yeah, very very blessed, um, and very unique and different. And I remember one of my great mentors, Murray Deeker, um, my deputy principal at Takapuna Grammar, who then turned into a bit of a media star with radio and television. Um, used to call us, well, my mother and her cohort there's there's trendy left-wing liberals in Devonport, um, <laughs> who's a bit you know a bit out there and a bit arty, and they were. And Sandy, my mother, you know, very much a thespian did a drama diploma in 1978 when I was 12. And for me to be around that sort of clique of people um, was very interesting. Um, And I, I, um, you know, again, um, grateful to be exposed to that. And then sport. So there was that whole passion of the arts through mum and the transitioning of moving from playing rugby as as a youngster to then going to maybe soccer and cricket and looking at other, you know, more beachy swimming Swimming competitions at school and all that sort of thing, just different. So yeah, you know, then cricket took more of a hold, um, having seen Dennis Lilly and Richard Hadley in nineteen seventy seven, uh, locking horns. And so um, yeah, cricket and, and football were were big, but then cricket started to dominate more the summer code. Um, and yeah, and that just that more on that pathway um, led me to you know wanting to achieve that dream of wanting to play for New Zealand.
3: Yeah, it's it's a really cool story, and I know you're incredibly humble about it, and you don't say a lot, I know, but I'm going to sing your praises, that you had this goal, you had this drive, you were watching Lily and Hadley, Lockhorns, as you say. There were big battles, and Test Match cricket was quite alive and thriving and big back then, and probably because television was the only real big media along with radio, what was it about watching Dennis Lilly and Richard Hadley that made you go, I want to do that?
2: Hmm. And, again, you, you use the uh, descriptive narrative of two protagonists in a way strutting on a different stage, um, as my mother would put it. And here they were, these two guys, um, say, lead actors protagonists going at each other. Um, yeah, and I thought they were p- pretty cool. Yeah, they were both mustachioed sort of guys. It was almost like out of a Western, you know. <laughs> you think of some of those spaghetti Westerns with Clint Eastwood and the gang, um, some of those baddies with mustaches. But, yeah, they they, they were just, again, a, another sporting sort of cliché, but, you know, they really were larger than life mm-hmm. um, and they did hold centre stage. So that was, that was big. And I remember saying to my deputy principal at the time and around it's about 1980, um, and cricket was just getting a little bit more serious um, at, at, at high school, at grammar school. And I remember saying to Deke, um, we looked at the honours board and there was, you know, the great Bert Sutcliffe, a uh, New Zealand left-hand batsman who was the head boy of Takapuna Grammar in 1942, that uh, I remember winking at him and saying, uh, I'll be on the honours board one day. Um, and he just winked back at me and said, um, Danny, it's good, to be, it's good to dream big. And good on you. And then we just, yeah, you know, he carried on walking and doing his thing and had to go on. And I went up the other end of the hallway. But it was, um, you know, we both look back on that Deeks and I um, and he remembers it vividly as well. And then, of course, getting into trouble and getting caned and stuff uh, at Decker Grimmer and being a bit cheeky. Um, but I think, yeah, the seeds were planted even sort of at that stage where Murray Deeker was big with rugby, but cricket, he was coach of the first 11, and, um, And so, you know, that was great from channeling that energy for the summer code.
3: Mm. It's quite a beautiful story because you're not your typical fast bowler and by no means am I pretending to be an expert here, but even with what I learnt with cricket, um, you're not your typical fast bowler. Um, In fact, you were called a garden gnome a number (laughs) of times. What made you be able to do that? Because we can have talent and we can have heart and we can have desires and dreams but to put it all together and actually then achieve, and then not only achieve and get in the side, but then stay in the team for 10 years, you mm. know, how on earth does a short person become mm. a, a tall man's job? Mm.
2: <laughs> yeah, when you look at it like that, it's, um, it's I suppose it wasn't, it was a bit unusual for sure, because a lot of that great West Indian side, they were big men, they were tall, strapping fellows, um, and even, you know, different guys within the cricket. Um, international scene were big, apart from someone like a Malcolm Marshall. So I took heart from Marshall. Um, he was only about 5'10", and so those guys who weren't particularly tall ran in um, and could bowl fast. So it's funny, I didn't see myself as a particularly that much of a hobbit from the Shire, <laughs> um, and we tend to use that a lot around the globe in, in commentary these days. But I just think, you know, you got on with it and believed that you could do what you could do, and it was looking at Lily and Hadley and that rhythm. And I remember Dennis and Richard saying to me uh, at a young age, you know, having that exposure with both those um, star quality players, was that um, rhythm is the key. And you know, that whole thing of self belief and that real mental desire was was powerful. And so, to get some of that um, at an early age. Lily I met when I was 19. I had a back injury and what have you. I just got on the stage a little bit of and on the radar of first-class cricket a bit and then I broke down with a back injury at 18, turning 19. And so that was inspiring, no doubt, uh, to meet one of your, your idol, and then on top of that and then play against Richard Hadley in 1986 when I made my serious first-class debut. Um So, yeah, I was blessed in that regard to get a go early while you're still young and developing and um, um, just simply got on with it because you believed, you know, you visualised and you believed and um, you had some of those different expertise from different backgrounds letting you do what you really wanted to do and what you were passionate about.
3: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your mum before we carry on about your cricket career. Um, your family. She, she's she been one of your greatest mentors, your greatest supporters and advocates. She's the mother-in-law from heaven. Huh. Um, she really is something special. What was it that had her be such an incredible influence in your life?
2: I just think she too, um, a bit like Deca, when he winked at me and says, Danny, it's nice to dream big, didn't go, a bit like my PE teacher, and said, Morrison, why don't you wake up and smell the coffee? Um, Look at you. You're a sawn-off runt. How on earth are you going to run in a bowl fast? Um, And look, again, excuse me. We're loving this podcast. It's about Um, self-love. Instead of being circumcised, you've had your legs cut off. And that's what my PE teacher said um, and gave me such a, you know, a ribbing and stick about it. And it wasn't like I was trying to prove him wrong, but I had Sandy Morrison and Murray Deeker go, good on you, you know, Dream big, go for it, and not holding you back. And go, oh, you know, really, you know, let's let's do something serious here. And you know, maybe you should look at this, or maybe you should go down this path, or or what I was thinking of doing was perhaps going to do a physical education uh, diploma degree down in Otago University. But cricket took over, and it just became a, poof, such a snowball. And you know, wanted to ride that wave, as it were. And so for Sandy Morrison, my mother, exposing me to when I was injured there, and when I was. Eighteen, so that's around late eighty-four, um, to listening to tapes of visualization and focus, and an orange healing light to where you were struggling and being sore, and just visualizing this healing light, as well as using heat lamps, which were sort of developing back in those mid-eighties, um, to really go down that path of help, self, self-love, and way, self-help mm-hmm. and self-healing, and so. I just really focused on that and wanted to, and then, as well as stretching programs, <coughs> excuse me, and getting into swimming and getting into different rehabs that strengthened your core stability and looked after your back to help and stretching your hamstrings and all those sorts of things uh, on, a, on a physiology and, and anatomy scenario, Mum was great for helping me in those sort of little um, strategies as it were to make a difference, to look outside the square, look a little bit differently um, about positive visualisation, listening to tapes, because we really hadn't been exposed to that out of the United States and where they were going in that, particularly with basketball and professional sport in the United States. So mum was actually, when you think of it, quite a, a forward-thinking uh, person, and that whole thing of hypnosis as well. Um, and I met another guy, Brian Head, and his wife Diane. And we were up for... Trying different things to visualize myself doing what I was wanting to achieve, and that was, you know, running a ball fast and open the bowling with Richard Hadley, Um, and to realize that goal and dream, and you know, finding little bits of the jigsaw or some strategy to help me get over the the bad back injury at the time and move forward.
3: And she's quite a forward-thinking soul, like you said, but also quite spiritual, very. open to the mindset mm. of life and very um, proactive in supporting you to stay, you know, pretty level-headed and very grounded. And I just that's love that story of you getting caned at, <laughs> at high school and how she just stormed up to the school. Yeah. <laughs> in
2: 1980, yeah, that's right. I got um, came by the fourth, fourth-form dean, and she wasn't very happy about it because she said, <laughs> you know, my son is a very sensitive young individual, and she... Yeah, Storm into Murray Deeca as a deputy principal and the first 11 cricket coach. And I wasn't quite in the first 11 then. I was just a little bit young. Um, so it wasn't until the next season. But yeah, he was, you know, she really gave Murray Deeca both barrels. Um, and that wasn't the way to get the best out of someone like me um, with my upbringing and different. <laughs> so Mum, yeah, went up there and let Deeks have it um, in terms of from this very trendy liberal upbringing from Devonport. So, um, yeah, mum was great like that. I, I think Sandy gave you a different outlook and a different perspective on things rather than just perhaps the old, and that's not pigeonholing, it just say perhaps the stereotype of what was going on in those those early 80s.
3: She's a beautiful soul and we both love her dearly. Um, moving into then school and finishing off, you had the carrot dangled with Murray. Murray obviously saw something in you, um, that little spunk, that naughty cheeky little hmm. Right, um, no. but he obviously saw something in you. He obviously saw some talent, and also incredible that he had the capacity to think about dangling the carrot. Talk to us a little bit about that. We <sighs> around, I
2: suppose. Yeah, it was around 1983, and so I was finishing at Tagapuna Grammar, and it was a bit like, "Well, Danny, where do you want to go from here?" I can see you're quite decent at this, and I played in the Auckland Under 17 Rep side. Um, uh, late, of, late of 82, 83. And so by doing that, showing some talent and, and potential and sort of adhering to all of those things, um, that focus, there was another guy, Bruce Warner, who was a couple of years ahead of me in finished school. And so what they did is they said, look, why don't we try and send you guys to play overseas in England in the off-season? And so we had a, we had a casino night. Where we ran a again a very amateur casino fundraiser, and so from connections of that, um, we said, yeah, let's let's give this a go. And so I was certainly up for it, and Murray was great about it, and so and so were some of my mother's connections. And to run uh, a fundraising big night um, and a couple of little small things to get us to go to the North London, and so Bruce went to one of the cricket clubs down the road, and I went to the other rival one. Um, probably, you know, just about 5 k's up the road. And, and it was just a wonderful time of your life being 18 and leaving home and having just finished school the year before. It was really a great carrot, as you say, dangled to then get fitter and get into it. And really, um, it was just a lovely taste of going to England because I also played football, soccer. and And you think of the history of the rugby there and all of that sort of thing, and the music that I was into, that British ska music scene. And so to go there and realise a dream to physically go to London and then had a great job moving around with um, the club treasury, God rest his soul, um, the late Gerald Harmon. And he uh, had a job for me through Canon UK in their exhibition roadshow for photocopies. So I travelled all around with him and the truck driving guys and all of that. And we just helped lift and shift these on and then ran the, the stage show and, the, you know, the exhibition of the show. And I did some of the lighting and the whole thing it was really good fun. And so um, again, bringing in that Thespian background. Um, so it was cool. And I had such a neat time. And so I went back there in 86, because that's when I then got injured after my year in England. I think just the workload of cricket too much. And perhaps as a youngster, didn't quite take enough of my training seriously, that side of it. Um, and, your body's changing so dramatically as a late teen into your early 20s. and That's where a lot of injuries occur for quick bowlers especially. Um, And then, yeah, had that opportunity. So, you know, when you look at particularly your mother, sure, and and Murray Deeker, had some good mentors at at a young age. Mm.
3: One of my favourite stories, which I hope you don't mind me telling, um, was you were in the, the pub or the bar, from what I can recall, at the Herefield Cricket Club, and you turned around and told the boys what your dream was, was to play cricket. Oh, right,
2: right, right. Talk yeah.
3: to us about that and then how you made that come true.
2: Well, I'd i been there in 84, and so um, I had played first-class cricket in 86, so there was 85, 86 summer dinner. So I came back for a second year at Herefield Cricket Club, so I got a taste of playing first-class cricket. So during that summer of 86, uh, a lot was going on. That, that I think that Football World Cup and Diego Maradona, the hand of God, and all that stuff in England playing in this. And then New Zealand were touring. Uh, Richard Hadley, they won that Test Series 1 0. The mate of mine, Willie Watson, was in the side. John Bracewell, the Crow brothers, was about to embark and play with those guys. I didn't realize at the time. But I remember saying, yeah, um, it was after after a match, we were in the tr- changing rooms, and then I was just ready for showers. And you know, he said, well, yeah, just getting fired up. I remember just saying, well, you know, you guys, you know, they love ridiculing me or giving me a hard time and, you know, just giving the, you know, the overseas player or the Kiwi from down under a bit of stick. And um, I said, well, you must laugh as you may, gentlemen. One of the next times I come back here to play, you will be paying to come and watch me play. And they said, oh, I'll stick it. No, you know, one finger salute to <laughs> the bird and up yours. And, you know, you're yeah, right, are you dreamer. So they were giving me a lot of ribbing then, even more so. So I stuck my neck out there. And um, it was fascinating, yeah. So that was 1986. So I came back on the next New Zealand tour, which was 1990, the great Richard Hadley's last. He got knighted on that tour, became Sir Richard Hadley. And John Wright was captain at the time. And those Herefield guys, to their credit, came down to – uh, just down where we were staying in central London and came for a, for a drink at the pub because uh, the, the team were all going there and the coach and manager were putting a little bit of a shout to get together at the start of the tour. And there's probably about half a dozen, you know, about six to eight guys from the club came down. And uh, I remember John Wright saying, Danny, it's a real testament to you um, that these guys have come out. You know, there's, you know, say, six or eight of them that came from the first team and really wanted to come down and see you. Um, and it was, yeah, it was really sweet. It was a fond memory there, that they um, did come down and see me, um, that I got on the tour. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was an amazing time of your life, really, to realise that dream, come back, given them I'd stuck my neck out, had I, you know, been cheeky. Um, and, there, there they were. they you know, The guys from Harefield came and supported and said, good you know.
3: on, Bought a ticket to watch you play at Lords.
2: Yeah. yeah I couldn't get that many tickets.
3: So some <laughs> of them had to pay. <laughs> I know. I love that story. I think it's such a classic of you know, someone putting their neck out, as you say, and and living your dream. Tell us a little bit about your career. You had a vision that you'd play cricket for New Zealand for 10 years, and you did exactly that. What was it like playing for your country? What was it like being a representative of, of beautiful New Zealand and playing through an era of real transition? Mm. Um, talk to us a little bit about what that really felt like to be at the top of your game.
2: Oh, I did. It. And I remember, as you rightly said, I think, because of the people around me, particularly someone like Murray Deacon and um, my mother and my uncle, Uncle Reuben, um, uh, the New Zealand cabin crew dude, um, that they were very grounding for me. And I think just the simplicity of my, in inverted commas, um, single parent upbringing mainly. Um, my uncle was there a bit, but he wasn't. You know, he was flying so much with his job. And, and Deeks, and I think, you know, that was the great thing about them keeping you humble um, and just getting on with it. And I think just being a local lad in Devonport, going to tackle a grandma and um, doing what you were doing, um, you pinched yourself. I think regularly you really did realise um, that this wasn't going to happen forever. It wasn't going to last forever. So, you know, there's, a, again, that boring old sports spin or cliches that, you know, you've got to treat each game, it could be your last game, you just never know, you might get injured, you know, um, you might fall away, a couple of big guys, stars come through and you could be, you know, suddenly on the back benches, as, as it were to, to be picked again, um, all of that sort of thing. So you knew how fickle it could be, but, um, you know, determination um, and the drive to do well, and I remember, I remember the, um, a very good, just a very simple but really strong line a guy called Jim Blair who used to train at the Institute of Sport and Corporate Health in Auckland where a lot of us did train. And that was like the rugby players, the yachties, you know, individuals, tennis players, whatever, netball players, hockey players, a lot were really strong there. And so when I look at it, um, he said to me, Danny, for making it to the top, it's tough getting to the top. It's even tougher staying there. And so that resonated and stuck with me. And so, yeah, again, that you wanted to stay within the group, stay within the side, keep performing, um, and not um, taking things for granted. So it was—it was a big driver to keep uh, to keep on keeping on, because you only had a short window. Let's say your twenties, twenty to thirty, and that's how it really ended up for me. You know, twenty-one and then finished at thirty-one. So back then, for me, um, it was such a great time in my life. I look back and very grateful for, like I mentioned. Um, Particularly, obviously, my mother uh, and, and someone like Murray Deeker to give you the drive there. And then some of the guys like Dennis Lee and Richard Hadley, of course, you, those senior guys that were icons for you and idols um, to help, you know, to get into the side, to realise your dream to have a crack. And then, of course, we'll, we'll delve more into the depths with Ken Morrison, your good self, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> to want to stay there and get looked after and stay on the team.
3: Well, let's go there. You've made it into the team. We're in 1987. You are, you know, on your first tour. I think Sri Lanka was your first tour. Bomb
2: went off, yeah. And then we went to the World Cup in 87, which I sort of Phil Horn and I were sort of holiday makers. We played the very last game when, you know, we were knocked out of the tournament. But, again, it was a great experience. And then, yeah, and then I remember the coach there saying to me at the time, oh, look, don't get stressed about this. World Cup, sure, it's a World Cup, but the goal for you would be to get on that Aussie tour. Isn't it funny? I even remember back then going, oh, yeah, like <laughs> penny dropping. Oh, yeah, there's that tour coming up. So it was amazing how I think in the now I kept, and I think mm. that was from Sandy, be in the now. Yes, there's a couple of things possibly down the track there, but be in the now and be fully focused on what you're doing. And so I really didn't realise, oh, God, yeah, it's right. It's a tour of Australia. And that's where I met you. <laughs> that's
3: right. And for those of you that don't know the story, I had won a ticket to Perth with my girlfriend, Lizzie. We worked together in travel just so happened to be that the New Zealand cricket team were there playing WA, I In think.
2: Perth,
3: yeah. um, was it a day-night match?
2: That one was, yeah. Yeah. One match, yeah.
3: And Lizzie, my girlfriend, said, oh, you know, there's this, there's this hot guy playing cricket. I was She, she was <laughs> flatting with uh, one of your best mates mm-hmm. at the time, and we won these tickets or we got these tickets from you. And so there we found ourselves at the WACA, not interested I wasn't in cricket. It wasn't really that thing. I remember Richard Hadley and Lance Kens and the big hitting guy and the one day as that had happened. And there was a bit of an explosion of cricket at the time. So I was aware of some of these players. But it was like cricket schmicket. And and then she said, Come on, let's go down and meet Danny. And I'll never forget the big white-coated man disappearing mm-hmm. and you walking out. And all of a sudden I became very interested in cricket.
2: Well I gave you a hug.
3: Especially I'm when you gave me a hug. It. When you gave me, Be kind and caring. <laughs> you gave me a hug and I just remember that smell, that feeling, that, that look and, you know, someone who was obviously very talented, focused, you were tanned, you were fit, you were young, you were hot, you had <laughs> everything going for <laughs> you. And um, it was really cool. And I think the nicest thing about that is we got to hang out, we got to go to a few barbecues, go to Cottesloe Beach together. Mm. And it was there that I really realised that you had something quite magical and I wanted to know more, but I also knew I was 19 and you mm. were 21. Mm. What was your experience of the whole thing?
2: Oh, it, was, it was a whirlwind, wasn't it, really? When you think suddenly, as I mentioned, being at that Cricket World Cup wasn't turning out how you know, you'd like it to. And as I say, played the last game, it didn't matter. And then got on that Aussie tour, met you briefly. You went back um, to Auckland, and to go back to work and what have you, and, and we were certainly just on the circuit there. And then I said to you, I rang you, didn't I? I said, why don't you come, why don't you come to the Boxing Day Test Match, which would have been quite freaky. Then, could, good Lord, really? Um, mm-hmm. And I did, and I said, yeah, why don't you come to Melbourne? He did
3: the- save with all the other wives and girlfriends. Oh, yeah, yeah And I on. thought, mm, he's put me in that category. <laughs> <laughs> so That's I cute. quit my job, sold my car, moved back home, and bought a one-way ticket to Melbourne. Yeah. So, yeah, there we were on Boxing Day Test Match, 1987. Right. We should have won that Test Match
2: dick french what a dog <laughs> <laughs> i'm still having therapy we're, still, we're <laughs> still in therapy over
3: that one
2: but the great thing that my father was living there and he'd been there full time since 1980 so that, that was quite neat about it and um i had christmas day there with my father and his um, second wife heather and my half sister so that was pretty neat out in the Dandenongs. and then you came over the start of the next day which was boxing day and I you know, and said, yeah, it was it was just a whirlwind romance, wasn't it? It was great fun. And you think young and realising a dream like that and playing at the Melbourne Cricket Ground, a test match and all of that thing and how it panned out and the drama, the theatre of it all. And I think, too, as you said, there was the thing that you mentioned coming up with Lizzie, that Lizzie wanted to do the big O.E. and there was that sort of plan, wasn't there, that you were going to meet up with Lizzie, go to London and be based out of there and what have you been work. I mean... You just got stuck in Melbourne, did you? I didn't leave <laughs> Melbourne.
3: Let's just say, but it was a it was a cool time. And then you know we travelled together with the team, and the Wise and Partners were all over. Um, we went from uh, Melbourne Perth, uh, to, Perth to Perth for yeah. New Year's, and then back to Sydney. Um, you then ended up with a groin injury. Wasn't my uh, fault. Was, was not it. my fault. And um, and no, we both yeah. yeah, and we both had to hit a crossroad. And I remember you sort of saying, "So what are you going to do?" And You know, from my perspective, I knew you weren't ready and you were young and I knew you were the one and I knew that it was just going to be a matter of time for you to work that one out. Um, So I stayed on in Melbourne Mm -hmm. and, you know, I then forged my career, which I've spoken about on other podcasts. But for you then, for the next three or four years, you were really ensconced in cricket. Mm -hmm. You were very much focused on playing the game and being the best and obviously learning a lot more around the mindset Talk to me about how, you know, in your whole 10-year career, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was very few test match wins Mm. and you played how many, 48 test matches? Yeah. How many one-dayers? And no,
2: about 90. No, I remember just missing out on 101 days. That's about 96, I think. So, mm. like, 95, 96 one days. And 48 tests, I so mean, just missing out on 50. Yes. So when you think of the modern era today, 50 test matches is like um, 100 these mm. days. So if you play 50 tests back then, it was very much like these guys playing 100 test matches. You play so much more cricket, obviously, nowadays, and so many more one days. So, yeah, just missing those two little milestones. But it wasn't it was just numbers. And, and for me, it was about playing. Mm. And I think you have mentioned there where you stayed on in Melbourne. I had to go there. Like I was turning 22, you were turning 20. And I was just getting on with things um, and forging. You know, I just got in the side uh, seriously and trying to, you know, really try and cut it and stay in the team. And so for me, with the, the mindset of it, um, certainly doing a little bit more of that with, with my mother uh, and those visualization cassettes, the good old days of mm-hmm. a cassette mm-hmm. that you'd put in a Walkman and listen to. And um, and just being exposed to that sort of stuff. And then the Brian Head with the Hypnosis was 1990. You were still, obviously, say, living in Melbourne. And so I really, yeah, I had to immerse myself in that. The great Richard Hadley was finishing. There was going to be a changing of the guard. Uh, Hadley finished in the middle of 1990 on his 39th birthday so a lot of those guys John bracewood finished Ewan and chapfield finished the year before martin Snedden ended up hanging up his boots um jeff crow there was a real shifting of that solid experienced um, core of that New zealand side from the 1980s and I'd been a throwover from the last part of it from you know late 87 through to towards that end of ninety and so yeah it was it was it was you were gearing for that you knew they were they were on the you know, the last sort of tours, the twilight of their careers, um, and there was that whole transition. So there was a lot going on mm. um, physically and mentally changing. and
3: um, But also an opportunity, right? Mm. So an opportunity knowing there was a change of guard, knowing that the magazines and everybody were calling you guys the Young Apprentice, you and Willie Watson were on mm. the cover of the Metro magazine. The Young Guns. The Young Guns right. taking over the and Chatfield and Richard Hadley kind of role. Um, from a mental perspective, you know, things can go wrong. You hmm. you snapped um, tendons, you've had injuries and things like that. How did you stay focused to not be hard on yourself and to get down on yourself through a career like this? Because it doesn't matter if it's sport or in a career in the corporate world or whatever it is that you choose to do, there's always knockbacks. There's always yeah. setbacks. How did you keep picking yourself up?
2: Well, I, I think there was, that, uh, there was always that belief of unfinished business um, and there's the next challenge. And so... Um, and then I mean, we, let's let's keep on the let's keep on the romance and the self love story. <laughs> you came back in, in late February '91, so we caught up in late '90 in Melbourne. He came to his senses. <laughs> <to> <laughs> so then I remember catching the taxi to have a massage, and then seeing where you were at, and, just, and then just touching base with you and say because let's also let people. Uh, in on the, the secret that we kept in touch a little bit i ran into your mother ran into your mother in april april the 13th 1988 in <laughs> hairfield at one of the local pubs she wandered into it was bizarre she was looking for me and i was there with another cricket mate um but that's where i met my future mother-in-law good lord and you as i say you were living in melbourne um we stayed
3: in touch via yeah. letters. yeah you know that was the days where we had we I think I don't even know if faxes were around at that no. point, but we were handwriting letters and phone
2: on. calls. Yeah, you had to yeah. do landline calls, and so anyway, yeah. Long story short, there yeah, you came back in '91, and I think that really turned a corner for me in terms of then getting exposed more into remedial therapies with you, massage, stretching, and the whole sort of mindset thing was was going well with Kim and, and aromatherapy. I think for you and then Sandy with the cassettes and things, but the aromatherapy side of things, having to shave my legs regularly to have massage that was the deal. You know, the hairy tarantula arms. Of Danny, <sighs> if you want me to regularly massage those legs, look at you, you tarantula, <laughs> you're going to have to shave those. So, yeah, let's get into it. And uh, it became a table tart, loved it. <laughs> and so your good self and, and my mother-in-law, you know, massage. And I think for a lot of that, when I think back to um, aromatherapy, aromatically bathing, stimulus through aromatherapy, and remedial therapies, particularly the massage and stretching, PNF stretching, um, really helped me. So that, for me, was core focus to think about the next part of each stage. It was almost like what was coming up, tours that were coming up, and it was like assignments, I suppose, like in the business, we like, okay, we've got this, we've got this strategy, we're going with this, we're trying to get into this market, we want to develop this, and here's our strategy. Well, that was a bit like that for me. With you guys in the background, great support, Physically, for this, if you like, the machine, the car, keep it well oiled and, you know, get the old Warrant a Fitness thing happening, and look after it um, to get it on the park. So it was great. And I think we were a really good team. I think that was the great thing about for you to come away a lot. We decided to have children. We're just living the stream, weren't we? Living this, this passion and this roadshow, as it were, um, was, such a, was such a great gift. But let's not underestimate it. We worked really hard and trained hard and were focused and discipline sure you know there's the, the socializing and, and you know but and i think we're sponsored by breweries a lot of the countries were I mean, you know with our fair share of celebrating and it wasn't quite the discipline and the dietary requirements today in the professional era let's be real but you know we were still very serious um and you know particularly quick bowling is not an easy thing to do to your frame and to stay fit and focused um given that i had when you look at 1992, my first hernia, then I had a laparoscopic hernia in 94, and then in 96 I had the adductor tendon release. So when I look at that, I was 24, I was sorry, 26, 28, and 30, and those were quite challenging uh, things to go on for me in the realm of injury and getting back on the park. So you know there was lots of strategy, but there was also you know lots of downtime and frustrations missing out on tours, missing out on test matches, missing out, because you had to get fit and rehab again.
3: Mm. You had an incredible career. You did become second highest wicket taker to Richard Hadley. You were also the first New Zealander to get a one-day hat trick uh, in your bowling. <laughs> we're looking at the ball right now um, <laughs> as we sit here in our <laughs> office. Um, what was that like, to be the first New Zealander to get a one-day hat trick?
2: Oh, a blast. And as you say, and, and for, for listeners here, Kimmy's, podcast is that you again have initiated this and I, I don't want to get blowing smoke up your backside but really it's it's wonderful that i think is a moving to be stable again in another house we want to be for a long time is that um we've dusted off and dug out these old pictures of memorabilia because I've, I've got to say i've not been one really for that um you know to show off some of your wares of what you achieve but when you look at it now and there's a boxing charity one there we've had our noses broken in the past and laughing um, but there's some great memorabilia here um, and my cap um, that's been you know beautifully framed um, so you know Kimmy, I take my hat off to you too that we it was such a team effort and, and such a wonderful time of our lives to put together and then get it up on the walls here. So looking there, as you say, at that picture of me bowling in the one-day uniform with the ball that I took the hat-trick with and that's been uh, embossed into a frame. Mm. Um, it's
3: pretty amazing, isn't it, Like mm. to think that you've actually led this career. But, you know, at the other side of that, you know, you've done really well, you've got that hat-trick, you were second wicket-taker to Richard Hadley. Your career came to an end and let's let's face it, it happened quickly. It was mm. a, bit, a bit premature in both of our minds and hearts, but, you know, we refocused, recalibrated, pivoted, and then moved into having a family. One of the biggest things that I noticed looking back on our lives that I probably didn't take enough um, or pay enough attention to was just that transition for sportsmen who had 110,000 people chanting their name as they're bowling at the MCG into all of a sudden now, for want of a better word, you're on the junk heap of life you're not wanted, there's younger players coming through, Um, your sponsorships probably have got another year or two to run if that's the case, if you're lucky. But tell us from your perspective, I I know you're not an ego-driven person. I know you weren't doing it to be famous, but there must have been some challenges for you to all of a sudden wonder, who the hell am I?
2: Well, the other thing that you've seen over the years when you see men or women uh, have a substantial Professional sporting career is that that whole thing about it, and saying you've climbed your Everest. So what now? And for a lot of us, that's the thing. You know, you've reached the top of your sport or your pursuit, um, and I think possibly too for business people. You know, if they've achieved a lot and have, you know, whether it's they've created change in a corporate situation and made a lot of money for this corporation and set things up and left um, this legacy, as it were. Uh, to then say it changes for you or someone else comes in and you know, you're, you're a CEO and you're, sorry, we're going a different tangent now, we're going a different strategy. So, yeah, look, it is. Um, it's very difficult and confronting. I know, I'll be really honest, um, it was because it, it didn't end the way you wanted to. But I also think for you and I and being around Sandy Morrison um, and Murray Dika, that you also realise too that, um, you know, no one owns this. No one owns this position in the team um, you have no right, as it were, on that position totally, whatever that may look like. And so I think in a way we knew we had to get on. And I think luckily in little old New Zealand, there were there was, you know, and as we did, getting into the rebel sport, commercial role and everything like that, um, there were always going to be other little options to go to. And yes, it wasn't earning a living the way you wanted to, because you're doing, you know, you're living your dream. But um, it was quite difficult to leave that at the start because it's abruptly finished. But at the same time, I think that was the other lucky and focused thing that you were on about too, is that, well, let's, let's start our family. Let's, let's start the next phase of our life. We've been married since 93. This is now the beginning of 97. Um, and let's, you know, let's seriously look at that. We're living where we wanted to live in Auckland. Um, so there was other things going on. But, yeah, back to you, Chris, I, I, I think it's very difficult. And some don't cope with it that well. Some cope with it. Others, they've got other strategies to go to. They may have done a degree. Uh, they may have had a whole other avenues and doors open for them. They've created that. I think you see that more in the professional era now, that they, there are those strategies. There are those um, career opportunities that they've, either studied for or had help from the organization they're with. And I think that's such a need, totally.
3: I'm really curious to talk to you a little bit more about this because, you know, there's a number of men or women listening to this who their partners would benefit from hearing your message. But given, you know, you're now on the junkie bit of life, you're forging a career, and I have to take my hat off to you, you really did create an opportunity in the media with a magazine show um, called the Cricket Company. You got into radio sport with your own little slot, you know, on a on a. I think it was a Sunday show that you'd have, and you know, you really pushed yourself outside mm. your comfort zone to to keep going with the skills that you did have, which maybe comes from that thespian background and yes. your ability to be on stage, but now a different stage. But then we noticed, you know, and we had our properties, and you and I were living in our beautiful bubble, and. And then kind of life stung us, didn't it? It was kind of like a bubble burst. Your beautiful sister Zara went through a challenging time um, emotionally and, you know, we lost her Mm. in 2005. And, you know, that combined with, you know, still probably trying to work out who we are with two young kids, I probably didn't take into account just how much for a man that is to also deal with. How do you deal with something like losing your sister?
2: I I think it's quite different for individuals, I think, and it depends how close you are as siblings. And I just think for Zara and I, we were um, because she was pretty much exactly two years younger. Um, I've mentioned too in other podcasts and and other realms that um, I remember saving her life really. She was going to fall off a ledge and I was on the edge of it and she came running out, stumbling out. Of the bushes where we were living and slipped on the ledge of it and, and luckily i just rugby tackled her and stopped her from going over which was probably about a 20 30 meter plunge um down to a big ledge on Auckland's north shore where we were living so you know there was that bit of history there and god we've got on never forget the adrenaline how frightened we both were and shocked that oh, it could have ended tragically and Zara was like about i think nine or ten um something like that, eight or nine. Yeah, it was just freaky. So when I look at that, and then to evolve and move through and, and what was happening in our lives, um, you know, she married my best friend, our uh, best man, you know, from a wedding, and they had a child together very early, um, all that romance around our wedding. Um, and so then, you know, David moved out to New Zealand. And I remember saying to him, look, seriously, um, you don't have to be this knight in shining armour on your white steed to come out and say, Zara's got a great support network, and, you know, she was of the vocation that she wanted to have more children. It was up to her. Didn't need a, you know didn't need the man around, just, you know, wanted to get older. And so when I look at that, um, that really, you know, we became more ensconced as, as families, and, and mum really drove that too because it was, it was about family nucleus.
3: So when you lose someone like that, to go, well, she had a just to interrupt you. She had a child from a previous marriage, yes, and then she had two children with David close together. So she's got this beautiful these three children. She mm. she loves being a mum. She was an amazing mum, and she had these three amazing kids. Um, yeah, it was hard, wasn't it, to watch her um, go down a black hole? Really, yeah,
2: yeah it was, and, and quite a psychotic episode, really, and where she was going. And I, it's, it was hard because people were going, you know, yeah, I think there's always a the thing as human beings and when it's family and so close like that, there is that guilt thing of you that you do um, you do bash yourself up because you're thinking, what could I have done? You know, I should have been there more. Or should, I should have seen the signs. And it's a classic thing. You should have seen the signs. or And I, and I think, my, you know, my mother still feels like that at times. You can't get away from that. Um and yeah, and Sarah really did spin out. And um, for her to to tragically take her life the way she did, um, she was very committed to doing so uh, and really wasn't of a right clear mind, you felt. So, you know, that ruptured a lot of us, and particularly you and I. Um, so when I was working at a bit of Rebel Sport Mixture and uh, then into radio, so I got more into the radio and the show you're talking about and, and Sky Sport in New Zealand, um I mean, you're saying, you know, oh, was that was about May May 2006, you know, Dan, do you, do you fancy, could you live in Australia? And you and I talked about it years before, to be fair. Um, you spent a lot of time there in Melbourne, of course, in those late 80s, early 90s. And so when I said that, I went, gee, hell yeah, when? And so because of your connections here in Southeast Queensland, um, yeah, we, we put a plan together. And to be fair, you did, really. Um, and I said, look, I'm up for it. You know, I put my hand up. Um, And, look, to be honest and upfront with stuff, and I know I've mentioned it uh, in in other um, channels of expressing this publicly, is that for me it was a very difficult time. I mean, I was on antidepressants, you know, starting to realise that and then people going, wow, Dan's not in a good place. Um, And then we realised and saw our GP, the all-black doctor, Dr John Mayhew. And then I I went um, uh, went on those antidepressants probably for about 10, 11 months. Um, and started to wean off them. I remember the, the O'Meara saying, you know, you should need to probably get off those. And so I was on those for a good year to say ten, eleven months, and it was a difficult time. It was a massively difficult time to know where you were really at. There's a lot of times where you were vague and you couldn't help feeling down and emotional. Um, and you just find yourself very teary and, and, and just awkward situations where you were, uh, and it would just hit you like a massive wave. Um, so it was a very difficult time. And so um, even thinking about it now, I'm getting a little bit stingy in the eyes, just saying, looking back at that time um, was a very dark time and a very difficult time. But I've got to say, with you um, and, and thinking of the, our young family, to get some sunshine back in our life uh, was very key to um, not even so much running away because you felt like you were running away. No, because we're just going across the Tasman. And a lot of us Kiwis come and evade here. And so you're only, you're only a three-hour flight back to Auckland. And so we regularly trek back and what have you. Um, so it was just that little bit of distancing um, and just having to get out of the bubble, that, that sort of different bubble that was very encompassing and emotional and very dark for me. Um, so, yeah, I needed to. And I think um, for those particularly males listening, there's other strategies around Um that can help you, um, and it doesn't always just have to, and then you see the crazy thing, and just and I, and I did, and, I, and again, very open to being open to it, was, um, you know, drinking and, and, and the escapism of, of smashing yourself and, and, you know, losing yourself in alcohol because it would numb the pain. And again, that's pretty clichéd and, and just so standard um, for men to do. And so it really wasn't until, you know, massive enlightenment and and, you know, doing all the wrong things, um, that, you know, it came crashing down. And, and as you say, and Dr. Brett Hill's book, titled Rock Bottom, you know, you have to sort of hit a rock bottom to then have a, an epiphany and realise in this life-changing scenario. Otherwise, a lot don't come out of that. And I think that was where the family were worried. You know, you do hear that and see that, that, well, my sister's done that. It gives you a licence to then follow, and so many do in that. Realm of suicide, and it just does it. You know, it stays within the system of the family because someone's done it. You know, it sort of gives you license in a way to do that. So, but you know, and, it, and, and look I'll, again, really opened it there because there's times when you thought about it. You know, you really did think about screw it. You know, yeah. it's just it's crashing in on you. What's it all about? You know, I'm bouncing around here. You know, where's the light? for me and there was times when you felt like you could just go off into the ocean and just finish it
3: well and let's be honest you weren't only hit with that we came over here to get that sunshine back in our lives we then lost our money in a you know institution Mm. during the gfc so we lost that we lost our house back in auckland it was just kind of like one thing on top Mm. of the other and it's kind of like sometimes the straw that breaks the camel's back is the smallest thing and and as you say, we we found ourselves in a whirlpool of agony, and, mm. and I'm open about it in the sense that um, if our sharing, if us sharing our story, helps another couple to realise there is a way to get through this without having to hurt yourselves and each other and your family, um, and to realise that there's always a way out if you are open to it. I think one of the things with you is you are an incredibly emotive creature. (laughs) Mm. You um, are someone who shows their emotions beautifully and openly and easily. And, you know, I guess the downside of that is sometimes, you know, there's an essence of melancholy and certain music and certain things and, and maybe the why me and how come, which, you know, when as a wife, it's very hard to understand, but as a person looking in on someone's life, and taking a bigger picture of that, you can truly understand it. Men and women can go down this hole. Um, I guess it's it's called depression. I guess it's called you know self sabotage and, and and really um, a, a time of maybe even self loathing mm-hmm. and correct me if I'm putting words into your mouth. But you know how the hell do you crawl out of that? How do you hit your rock bottom? And what was your strategy to come out of that?
2: Well, and the other one that we've, you know, we've mentioned and discussed. You know, I had to come home and save my marriage. You know, I've made a big mess um, on lots of fronts, and um, when I think about all of that time, and then coming back to then have more therapy um, with Jacqueline Trost, um, and she was a godsend. And I think, I think if males are listening to this, and they, you, you have to find a good therapist that you can talk to, and particularly one-on-one at then certainly not with your your wife or partner, uh, however that looks, you need to find someone that you can talk to and they can give you some good strategy and really open you up to what's going on and are you prepared to move forward, either staying with your wife or partner, how does that look, and have some strategy around that. And I think for me with you uh, and my mother and those history, was the openness to listening to either audio books, again, more tapes, whether it was visualization when I was playing, and the likes of Wayne Dyer and people like that, that um, enlighten you to keep it very short and simple and just talking about different steps and different experiences that they went through and then verbalize those and you could listen to those and keep a diary and jot things down and how did it go for you on a daily basis, where were you going with this, So, a lot of those teachings um, for me were were hugely important. And I think they just gave you clarity when you wrote things down. And I think I was good about that. You know, I had a diary around my cricket that was uh, little notes of things that even Sandy'd written in, or I'd put in from, you know, Dennis Lilly or whatever. And so I think when you look at those, there's those sort of, yeah, people don't like the word the guru or the gurus, people that have lived a life and certainly people like Wayne Dyer had. And I think a lot of people around those, and, and whether it was whoever else, you know, you, you hear of different Buddhists or whatever, that, that that's where they've gone now. However that looks for you, whoever that is, male or female, whatever, but someone that you can listen to that's been in that pathway of discovery and also, I think, for yourself, of finding some self-awareness and working on oneself um, to realise that, and man, we're fallible, you know, we're humans. And excuse my French, we fuck up and make mistakes. But as long as you can learn from those um, and, and accept, you know, accept that we aren't and accept that you make mistakes and that you have been wrong or you've been stupid and silly and you've just got to somehow find a way um, that you feel good about yourself again and love yourself and the whole thing with you around self-love and the circle of self-love and falling out of it and all of those and finding strategy and mechanisms that work for you rather than self-loathing and bashing ourselves with alcohol or drugs or whatever that looks, to realise that you've got to get out of that. Um, if you really value who you are and that you can make a difference and value your partner and your children, because often they can be um, – They can be a a winning scenario for particularly men. There's those that don't, sure, and they just slide off the end and that's just tragic and awful. But at the end of the day, you know, we make choices. You make decisions. As was Anthony Robbins saying, you make decisions. You might or right or wrong. Ultimately, you've got to make some decisions here. And so you've got to make those choices. And I think at some point as as males, the hunter-gatherer thing, you've got to... You've got to make some serious decisions here. What do you really want? How do I go about it? And how does it really look moving forward in short term, smaller incremental goals that aren't too big and encompassing? So again, find a really good therapist, someone that works for you. And I think we were blessed with with Jacqueline, um, amazing French woman, and, and was quite simplistic about things, would like for me to give up alcohol completely. Obviously I haven't, but I've been sensible about that um and yeah and it's just it's been a fascinating decade if you like from that regard and that part of where we were and how it is um and where we've come to um yeah it's certainly been a learning
3: (laughs) well she was great wasn't she i mean she was really the one that taught us that you know draw a line in the sand the past is the past if you keep digging it up if you keep going there you're just opening a wound and it gets fested and full of puss and then you just explode and then you, you're never healing from it. Mm. And the one thing I took from her was you can't change the past no. or you can't make it into something it's not. So what are you going to do with what it is? And if you've got two people willing to learn and grow and move on, as hard as it is, and it certainly wasn't as simple as what I may sound like it mm. is, but to have her in our corner, and giving us sound advice and sex she was kind of sage-like. She had hmm. a very spiritual outlook which was similar to to your mum and practical like my mum and just perhaps was that that lending loving ear that understood the power of the connection that we had. Um, and I'd take have. our head off to, uh, th- that we have I have. have <laughs> I'd take have. my hat off to her um, and us, you know, for doing the work. It wasn't easy. Um, But I remember her words, if you work on yourself, Danny, and you work on yourself, Kim, your marriage could be better than it ever was. And Mm. I held on to that. Mm. You held on to that. Mm. Um, Maybe the universe threw it that we lost all our money so that we couldn't kick each other out. We had to go through this. (laughs) And I also want to give thanks to our good friends, Cindy and Howard, O'Meara, beautiful Fleur, and how she was, our Mm. amazing neighbors, Mark and Karen, and the way they they really, our inner circle became incredibly critical. My family were phenomenal. My brother was there for us. Um, you know, my sister would send messages. My mum was amazing. Your mum was incredible. You know, we, we were very blessed to have a few real key players. Mm. Um, they knew how much we cared for each other. And they also, you know, when people look in and see people struggling, it's You want to fix it for everybody, but we all know that no one can fix it for us. We had to do it ourselves. Looking back and sitting here now 10 years on and we're rebuilding our lives, we've just bought a home that we both feel really, really comfortable in and thanks to the support of our amazing, your your mum and and just also the amazing tenacity that we've both shown. You have had to stay on the road. That is your career. Mm. You're away from home eight to nine months of the year. We've got two incredibly amazing children, which I'm sure all parents would say about their kids, but I'm biased. particularly biased. Um, they are incredible souls. They've been, you know, my drive and purpose. And I know that the three of us have been your um, reason for living. And mm. you know, talk to me a little bit about what family means to you and, and now looking back on that and how far we've come and who we are now moving into our fifties. What is if you had a message to tell a 30-year-old, a four-year-old, a teenager. What would be your key messages?
2: Yeah, wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I think, and again, it sounds very easy to give lip service, but because I'm nearly 55 and I I always knew this, and I'll I'll talk about a little story, is is that I always knew that, and I preached it, health is our greatest answer. You can have all the money in the world, but if your health's no good, you're not going to be able to enjoy it or move through and live into your elderly age to, again, enjoy life. So I always knew that, and I was working with Murray Deacon in the Foundation for Alcohol and Drug Education that winter of 1989 and speaking at sports clubs, but mainly a lot of grammar schools, high schools, and wore that T-shirt underneath um, the Foundation for Alcohol and Drug Education where health is your greatest asset. And it was the, the sporting icons that were used in posters was, you know, say say yes to health, say no to drugs, or choose health instead of abusing yourself. And I think, you know, so, again, like everything, there's balance in life. You know, there's you, know, you use that great rule, 80-20. 80 80 percent of the time, it would be good, healthy, good living, balanced, 20% little treats, bit of alcohol, celebrating, whatever that is. And I think that goes a long way to, you know, having to celebrate the good times and then being, if you like, on that treadmill of life that just gets on and uh, stays on that little bit of straight and narrow, there are going to be flare-ups. You're going to, you know, it isn't isn't plain sailing. There's always, again, that, you know, cliche you know, road bumps. There is those road bumps along the way. There just is. Um, So I think about health, and I think that it is easier for you and I, because we were from sporting backgrounds, to get up and get active. And I think to do it in the morning, most people would say, no, I'm not really a morning person. A lot do. A lot prefer to do it in the afternoon. Well, if that's your thing, that's great. But try and be physically active and do that. I think mentally to clear your mind that you need to get out, and whether it's just walking, going to the gym, how it looks, swimming, whatever your training is, getting on a bike, exercising, doing something. And I think it's really important because we're pretty much basic animals, aren't we? Two legs, two arms, moving, eyes looking forward, um, the old hunter-gatherer thing, we need to move. And so I think it's important that you get out and move. I think it just clears your head. And I say at the beginning of the day because then things can get in the way in the afternoon. Things come up and things change all the time and then you get distracted and things move and you've got other appointments. So that's why I think in the morning's great. You just get it done. And it's kickstart your day. So that's where I was. What I would say to someone young and listening, is that that's key to it really is, is that you get up and you do something active and physical in the morning to have your health to, to then keep moving and living because, and as a classic example, and, and again, open, my dear mother, um, been so much more spiritually minded and about the mind and meditation and everything about that and perhaps has neglected a little bit about the physicality of herself, um, she won't mind me saying this, hated those sort of things. You know, physical wasn't really, you know, exercise or even walk in the morning, walking with a group. And now you see it a bit more. But mum was more into meditation, uh, yoga classes. There was That was her, but more physical outlet. Um, but then didn't keep that up or whatever. So mum's suffered a little bit of late um, in terms of the physical side of the thing. And, and this, this engine, this uh, vehicle that moves you around, Um, It's like anything, you know, any good car or lawn mower, you've got to look after, you know, put the right oil in, you know, give it a clean, you know, value it, whatever you put in the right petrol, all that sort of thing, um, and look after it because you need to move around.
3: It's pretty good advice. And if you could look now sitting here at 55, coming out 55, what's the legacy you'd love to leave this world?
2: I think just having a go. I think you've got to have a go. And you're your testament to that too, massively more so in a way that you you want to help people and make a difference. Um, And I think by that, particularly for you, helping and giving of what you're on and your pathway, mine was more about either coaching youngsters um, through cricket, through the sport of cricket and helping them. Um, I'm doing it in some other ways through media, through another mate of mine, um, that you're bringing joy to people. And I think, Particularly, I'm lucky in my role that I do in terms of commentary for cricket, and particularly in the subcontinent, massive numbers um, that love the game of cricket. And so, you know, you, you are giving, and you see the smile you put on people's faces, and that they can just get away from the humdrum of work, if you like, that we all need to do at times, that um, you got to get out there. And there is that thing of grinding. People who got out there, you've got to do your job, whatever that looks like. You know, and for us, they think, oh, it's all right for you. You know, it's a glamour job and you commentate. Well, you know, times they don't see you getting up at 4.30 in the morning, getting to the airport early with a lot of other people, getting on planes, bashing around, in and out, broken sleep, getting up, commentating late, up and doing, moving and flying and all those different time zones. So whilst it looks glamorous, um, hotels, there's just another room and there is that grind, that treadmill of that. Whereas people getting in their cars, leaving home at 6 a.m. or 5 30, going down the motorway, going to the office, doing what they do in front of a computer screen all day, blah, 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 get back in your cargo. There is that. There is that monotony. There is always some sort of monotony and routine to whatever you're doing, you know? And, and that's not a bad thing. I just don't know. And that's why you, how you can, how can you jazz that up? How can you make that more fun or colorful in your life? And I'm just thinking, you know, exercise to try and get up and however that looks for you. Um, wherever you are, walking, training, going to the gym, biking, I mentioned it, however that is. Um, so, you know, when I look at the difference you can make in people's lives is what you, um, you bring to yourself um, and how you can make a difference. And I think that's been big for me um, is making a difference in people's lives. Mm,
3: nice. We're similar, right? Mm. So if there was one thing or one message you could say to your mum, what would that
2: be? Oh, look, thank you, really. And I I think that's just too that she's one of the, you know, so such an advocate for you and I. um, And I know that she's been uh, massive for the both of us. And so for mum, for me, the one thing is that um, the luckiest thing I have is that my love for my mother has been unconditional Uh, for all, (laughs) all the, some of the dramas we put our parents through, or particularly my mother. Um, the highs and lows, um, I've been very, very blessed and grateful um, to have her as a a mother and a role model and a rock, uh, particularly in those formative years.
3: Mm. And you've got incredible nieces and nephews on both sides of the family. Mm. Um, You've got a young lad called Miles who is your Zara's second child. Mm. She's got Asha, the oldest, and Ruby, the youngest. What would be your message to your sister's children?
2: I think they've just got to find their way. And I think um, they're all quite different. And so, um, and Miles certainly has his um, special needs um, and, you know, in terms of he's always going to need that and, and there's going to be medication for him at times, certainly. So I just think getting out and striving and doing what they're doing at the moment in their lives. So they've got lots to achieve. I know Ruby's the youngest and then Miles, Miles is turning 27, Ash is um, 32. And, you know, it's exciting, you know,
3: and just get out there and live it. They mm, love you dearly. Message to your children. What would that be? Same thing in a
2: way, um, because they're a little bit younger, was it 22 and 21, um, they've got so much opportunity um, and they've got some great physical attributes. They're spoiled. Uh, <laughs> i have been blessed. Um, you and I are at the Shire with the rest of the hoppers. They seem to have done all right. Um, so when I look at the yeah, I just yeah, keep, keep loving life. Um, and they're both very physical too in the, in the DNA, I suppose. But, um, yeah, get out there and, and grab life with both hands and make the most of it.
3: Mm. And what about Murray? You've talked about him a lot in this podcast. Mm-hmm. What has he meant to you and, and what would you say to him?
2: uh, yeah, he's been such a wonderful um, inspiration, really. And so for Deke, um, their old mad dog, as we nicknamed it at school, um, was such a larger-than-life character, and he helped us on so many good levels and having discipline and uh, and getting out there and then believing. Same thing. Um, I mentioned it before, earlier. Danny, it's nice to dream big um, and go for it. Um, and he always said that to me. Danny, you've always been a guy that, wants to take an opportunity with both hands and um, and live life. And he's been there and seen the ups and downs. Um, and he too, you know, he's had his ups and downs massively. So, um, yeah, Deeks has been a, a wonderful role model and, and mentor for me, without a doubt.
3: Mm. You and I are both quotes people. We love quotes and visualization, meditation, hypnosis, all of those things. What's been one or two of your most favourite quotes throughout your life? Do you remember any or do you know any off the top of your head?
2: Well, I think for me, and I've used it a little bit, and I wrote it down in that little that IB4 notebook. Um, I used to keep my cricket bag, cricket coffin, those big hard bags we used to travel with. Um, and then Charles, Charles Swindoll, you know, in terms of, you know, life really is 90% mental and 10% physical. and It's about how I have my attitude. What is my attitude? On any given day or time, to attack life, to, to be in the game of life. So, for me, that was that was huge. And attitudes, it can make you know, it's bigger than bigger than religion. in a way, it's, it's you know, it's bigger than society. It, it's about your attitude, and it's such a powerful string to your bow. Um, and that's the thing you can make a difference. Physically, I missed out. You know, those non-attributes I talk about. Um, and I think having seen that quote. It's quite a long one. It's almost again, you know, it's a whole little whole statement storyline about having um, strong attitude mm-hmm. to to get over things and make a difference. You know, you can have a pity party, sure, there is a bit of it just for a little bit and then give yourself an uppercut, as Murray Dick could say, give yourself an uppercut and get into the day. Mm-hmm. Get on with it, you've had enough, wallowing, boom. And so for me that Charles Swinnell the whole thing about, you know, ninety percent mental and well, attitude is everything.
3: Yeah, he talks about, I think his last line is, I'm convinced life is 10% what happens to me and mm. 90% how I react to it. Um, I want to acknowledge you. I want to say what a privilege it is to be your wife, um, what a privilege it is to share you on this podcast, and that I hope our story inspires couples to to keep giving and to mm. keep learning and growing together together. Um, I want to thank you for being an amazing dad because our kids have missed out on you a lot. Um, They've come away, away, though. They've come away a lot. Yeah, we've had some beautiful trips, which Mm. has always made up for it. Never allowed our children to say they could ever be bored, and I've never allowed (laughs) them to say, or whenever they've been in trouble or had problems, to blame you for being away. Always thought that we've chosen the life we've chosen in order to have the life that we've had, Mm. and there's still a lot to come. And I just want to say on behalf of our family and all the friends and the people whose lives you impact, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being A beautiful human and someone who really um, cares and has a beautiful heart.
2: And I would like to reiterate what our two children said now that they're adults, Taylor and Jacob, at the Wellness Summit in Melbourne of last August 2019. Everyone needs a Kim Morrison. (laughs) We love you, Kim Morrison.
3: Well, I hope you guys have enjoyed this podcast. We've certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. I'll put in the notes that beautiful quote that Danny's talking about, and I will put in there his Twitter account and his Instagram and (laughs) all the things that he (laughs) is loath to do at times. But, you know, we all want to follow him and, and see what else he's going to bring to this world because, in my humble opinion, you ain't seen nothing yet. Take care, guys. Be kind. Thanks for listening to the Self Love Podcast. Be sure to write a review and share the love with your friends and family and head over and visit Kim and her team at 28.com. That's the word 20 and the number 8.com. Take good care.
0: Bretto, it's been a tough year for many, but as we come to Christmas, we would just like to wish all of our listeners a very happy and healthy Christmas time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I hope all of you get to have the Christmas your heart desires. I hope you get to spend quality time with your family. And if that's not possible right now, I hope that you just make the absolute best out of it and have a wonderful Christmas and New Year period.
0: Thank you for your support of The Wellness Couch in 2020. And we can't wait to have you again as a podcast listener attending our events and being part of our community at The Wellness Couch. Merry Christmas.